One of the things I've always enjoyed doing is, is frankly, watching people. And I'm watching you right now. <laughs> and you're an interesting group. When you go out and you watch people, whether you're in restaurants or at an athletic event or in church, people are fascinating. We're much more alike than we are different, but at the same time, there are differences that exist between people. You could draw certain observations from watching people. One of them would be, have you ever noticed that as couples grow older, they start to look more and more alike? You're like, are you, are you siblings? No, okay. As people spend more time together, they, they start to think more alike. Then you can watch young people, and young people are also fascinating when you look at the generations. In the old days, like 10 years ago, when you would go to a restaurant, you'd see people sitting at a table and they were actually talking. Now they're texting someone else. You know, they're more interested in the, the virtual relationship than they are in the real relationship. That, that's a fascinating cultural phenomenon. I've also enjoyed listening to people's interesting laughs. If you listen to people laugh, there's some, uh, many different ways that people laugh and it, it can be quite hilarious just to listen to people laugh. I've also noticed that food breaks down barriers. There's something about just filling your face around people that just makes relationships much more fun. So if you, if you look around and you watch people, if you see, see what's going on in people's lives, you'll, you'll learn a lot about people. And one of the things I've, I've said to those in our church that are involved in counseling ministry, we've tended to take counseling and we've, we've elevated into some very high lofty task. You have to have a, a PhD to counsel people and give advice, but not really. If you watch people, what you discover is that people are much more alike than they are different. There's differences, but we're much more alike than we are different. And if you've met a hundred people that act a certain way and suddenly another person comes into your life, chances are they're, they're just gonna kind of act the same as the hundred you just met. So the more you spend time with people, the more you observe people, the better you are with people. And in the same way, we also need to develop the ability to see God at work in the world, to see his patterns, to see his principles, his promises. And just as many people go through life and they don't pay attention to anyone else, they're just sort of focused on their own little world, many Christians can go through life and make that same mistake when it comes to God. They don't pay attention to how God is operating in the world. They're not aware of what God is doing or what God is seeking to accomplish. We are doing a study over, uh, for the next several months on what we call Christian systematic theology. We're looking at a, the broad strokes of scripture to try to understand the major doctrines of the Christian faith, the orthodox doctrines of the Christian faith. I wanna let you know that sometimes as we're preaching on orthodoxy, we'll get into some secondary issues that aren't necessarily matters of orthodoxy. They don't make you a Christian or not make you a Christian, but primarily we're focusing on orthodoxy, on the heart, the core doctrines of the Christian faith. And last week we started a two-part message in what we call pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology. And today we're going to focus on the work of the Spirit. And I want this to be a lesson in theology, but I also want you to leave here with increased abilities to observe the Holy Spirit at work in the world. So we talked about the person of the Spirit last week. Today, we're gonna to talk about the work of the Spirit. And the Spirit of God is very much alive and well, and he's working in the world. And as Christians, we should, we should be aware of that. So just some general comments 
before we unpack some actions or activities that the Holy Spirit of God is currently involved in. First of all, the Holy Spirit we know is there in creation. When you open your Bible to Genesis chapter one, it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. So the Spirit of God was involved in creation. We know during the time of the old covenant that the Spirit of God would often come upon the mighty men or women of God in the old covenant and he would empower them for works of service and ministry. So he was involved there. Now it is true that because prior to the New Testament, we didn't have our full Trinitarian doctrine and because God is spirit, think about this, because God as a whole is spirit, in the old covenant, when it speaks of the spirit of God, we're not always sure if it's speaking specifically of the work of the third person of the Trinity or if it's speaking of God as a whole. Because while the Holy Spirit is obviously spirit, God as a whole is also spirit. So when it says the spirit of God, it may not necessarily be intending to point to this work specifically of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, but God as a whole. But what we have at our disposal is the New Testament. And at critical junctures, if there's ambiguity in the Old Covenant, the New Testament writers will address some of these Old Covenant texts and interpret them for us and give us more detail when it comes to uh, what the original author intended. So an example of this is Joel. Remember in Joel chapter two, one of those minor prophets, small book, not a, not a minor message, but a small book, so called a minor prophet. Joel prophesied that in the coming days, God's spirit would be poured out upon all men and there would be signs and miracles. And if you were reading that as an old covenant believer, let's say in the seventh century BC, you'd be like, well, okay, so it's, it's just God. God is going to do something. But when we get into Acts and we get to the Pentecost event, the writer of Acts, Luke, interprets, adds detail to what Joel had said in Joel chapter two. So now we know, because we have a completed canon of scripture, that the spirit of God prophesied in Joel chapter two was actually a reference specifically to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God. So that would be an example of where greater clarity is given to an old covenant text because we have a new covenant text in our possession. Now, as we talk about heretics, which essentially are those that would deny cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith in the battle for orthodoxy, we know that early Christians thought it was important for the church to have a robust theology of the Holy Spirit. So in the Nicene Creed, which I read to you last week, it states, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, meaning he is sent by both the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is adored and glorified. So he is worthy of our worship. We are, we are supposed to worship the Holy Spirit. And he was spoken through the prophet. So he didn't just come into being in the new covenant. He, he always existed as part of the eternal God. That statement primarily focuses admittedly on the person of the spirit. But when we get into the New Testament, we discover passage after passage that helps us to understand the work of the spirit. So here's our big idea for the purpose of this morning's sermon. The Holy Spirit is actively working 
in the world. The Holy Spirit is actively working in the world. Have you noticed that? The Holy Spirit is actively working in the world. He was involved from the opening chapters of the New Testament in the world. So you'll remember when Jesus was conceived, we're told in the opening chapters of the Gospels, that it was the Spirit of God that conceived the, Holy, uh, the, the person Jesus Christ in the Virgin Mary. We read about that in passages like Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus is sometimes called the Son of Man. Have you noticed that? Emphasizing his humanity but he's also called the son of God, emphasizing his full divinity. He is both God and man. And his conception came about as a result of the Holy Spirit bringing about his life in his human form in a human being called Mary. But he is also actively involved in our lives now, in the life of our church, in our families, in our marriages. And through him, we can be assured, this is where theology becomes very practical. Through him, we can be assured that God has not abandoned us. In my studies, I probably could have preached this morning on 15 different things that the Holy Spirit does, but I've tried to condense them down into seven. So we're going to look at seven ways of many that the Holy Spirit is actively at work in the world. And we want to increasingly learn to see that, to acknowledge that, to observe that as Christians. Here's where we'll start. It starts with convicting the world of sin. This is one of the greatest blessings that the Holy Spirit can offer to us. The Holy Spirit is involved in convicting the world of sin. In John chapter 16, verse eight, the Bible says, and when he comes, this is Jesus predicting his coming. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He will convict the world about what's wrong. He will convict the world about what's right. And he will convict the world about what the consequences are, depending on how you respond to what's wrong and what's right. So the Holy Spirit is involved in convicting us of sin. Now, it is true that a person who does not have the Holy Spirit can have an outward awareness of sin. This is why we still say to people, yeah, yeah, murder's wrong. Adultery's wrong. Don't steal other people's possessions. Covetousness is wrong. We communicate even to lost people that there are boundaries to relationships and to the way you conduct yourself in culture. Certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And you should do certain things and you shouldn't do other things. So they're, they're, all, all men can have an outward external awareness of what's right and wrong. But that doesn't mean they're necessarily convicted by it. So perhaps you've had this experience where you're talking to a, a non-Christian about something that's right or wrong. And they're like, yeah, that, that is wrong or that is right. Up here, they understand that, but it hasn't arrested them. They, have, they don't own it. it. It doesn't bother them if they violate God's laws. It doesn't bring about any real guilt or shame. 
But what the Holy Spirit does is he takes God's word beyond an outward awareness of sin and he convicts us of it. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you this, conviction is a gift. Many times people are like, I don't wanna be convicted of sin. It makes me feel bad about myself. Good, that's a good thing. We should feel bad when we sin. We should be like, I don't wanna do that again. This is not cool. This is not good. I want to move in a different direction. As we read God's word, this is how it works. We read God's word. We become aware of what's right and wrong. Gets into our ears, gets into our minds. And then the Holy Spirit does an amazing work by convicting us of sin. In other words, he awakens us on a spiritual level to our rebellion against God. And he causes us to acknowledge that sin is actually an offense to God. So this is one of the things the Holy Spirit does. So it might be helpful to differentiate between condemnation and conviction. Let's say I'm up here preaching or you're having a conversation with someone, they're talking about the word of God or you're in your small group and you're talking about the word of God and there's a sin in your life, whatever the sin might be, you name it. And someone says, or in the sermon, you become awakened to the fact that that's wrong. And not just in a distant kind of way, but you become aware, no, this is, this is wrong in my life. I shouldn't be doing that or thinking that or saying that. In that moment, you can get defensive and say, who do you think you are? How often do we hear language like this? Who are you to judge me? Right? That's defensiveness. Or, well, well, they're doing the same thing. Or, or what about you? That's defensiveness. And oftentimes people get defensive because they assume that they're being condemned, especially for Christians. Like, well, I thought Romans 8.1 says, therefore there was now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ for what the law was powerless to do. And then it was weakened by sinful flesh. God did by sending his own son. So why, why are you preaching judgment? Why are you preaching condemnation? Well, we're not. We stand condemned already until God redeems us. But when God redeems us and we, we are in that process of being sanctified and we, and we continue to sin, it's a blessing to be convicted. So there's a difference between conviction and condemnation. You know why? Because condemnation brings death, but conviction is intended to bring life. So when you come to church and when I come to church, guess what? I want to be convicted. I don't want to just come and receive a a pat on the back. You know, here's some milk and cookies. Let me rub your belly. I want to be convicted of my sin so that I can repent of it and serve the Lord more effectively. So this is a blessing and we should look for that. We should look like, Spirit of God, what do you want to convict me of today? Stinking thinking, maybe some heart issues, maybe some a lack of priorities. This is a blessing. We should lean into that. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is involved in regenerating sinners. He regenerates the soul. He leads people to exercise faith and repentance in the gospel that they've received from the preacher or through the reading of God's word. 
So here's how it works. Spiritually, by nature, we are alienated from God. Islamic theology teaches we're born spiritually neutral. Tabla rasa, blank slates. And then you choose good or bad. It's amazing how many people choose bad. The statistics are impressive as to how many human beings sin. But Islamic theology teaches that we're born blank slates, but biblical theology teaches us that we're born as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, condemned and with a natural propensity to sin. This is why we see it in the youngest children. As early as possible, they start to sin, rebel, push back, posture against their parents. So that's because spiritually, we're dead. Not just ignorant, it's not, it's not a knowledge issue. Spiritually, we are totally depraved, we're dead. That's, that's robust biblical theology. So what the spirit does is he, come in, he comes in and he regenerates. Maybe you've heard the term, we don't tend to use it as much in the modern church, but I, I still like it because it's biblical. You must be born again. Remember Jesus said that to an early inquirer and it's like, well, what does that mean? Am I supposed to get back in my mother's womb? Oh, he's talking about spiritual rebirth. You must be born again. So the command goes out, you must be born again. But as we understand the spirit's work, we realize the spirit is the one that actually brings that. He, he gifts us faith and he gifts us the capacity to repent. In fact, one could argue by the time you're repenting, you're, you've already been born again. Because spiritually we are alienated from God and cut off from eternal life. So this is so critical. This is such a critical aspect of our beliefs because the solution to human sinfulness is not moralism. The world's broken, so we're gonna just fix it through moralism. No, we're not gonna fix it through moralism. We need the spirit of God to do a regenerative work in people's lives. So they're born again. They have the capacity to trust and repent. Now, what I don't want you to then go away thinking is, well, then we don't preach God's law into culture because we don't wanna moralize people and make them buy into works or into gospel. That's a, that's, a different, that's a different application altogether. There is a place to preach God's laws in order to govern, to have a, a foundation, to create structures, to govern human civilizations. Otherwise people die and babies are aborted and gay marriages take place and people jump off bridges and marriages fall apart and people steal each other's possessions and on and on and on. So there's a place to preach morals into culture, but we do not preach morals as a means of fixing our spiritual crisis. We need to be regenerated. And just as you were born of a woman from a womb of flesh and of water, so you must be born again. Jesus answered in John 16, eight, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, speaking of not baptism, that's foreign to the text, but a physical birth, of, listen to the contrast of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So there's a contrast. We're all born once, of a woman, but we also need to be born of God. And it is the Holy Spirit that does that. Praise God for that. In Titus chapter three, verses five, four and five, 
And when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. So there's that key point, right? This is why we, we are so vehemently opposed to works-based salvation, to, to, to righteousness-based salvation. It's not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Who gets the credit for it? Then God. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the regenerating work of God is like taking a spiritual bath. It actually cleans you up. It, it deals with your sin issues. So we have the convicting work of God in the world and we have the regenerating work of the spirit. And then he also instructs us in truth. He is the author of the Bible. The spirit of God is the revealer of divine truth. The teachings of the Bible therefore are called the things of the spirit. Not the things of the preacher, but the things of the spirit. And so while we obviously must learn to read, <clears throat> you're just gonna open the Bible, I'm illiterate, I understand it. No, you need to learn to read, that's the human side. You need to learn to study. You need to learn to read well, study well. At the same time, there is a limit to your capacities to understand scripture without the spirit of God. Lots of people read and study the Bible. <clears throat> In fact, chances are this particular Bible that I hold in my hand, the English Standard Version of the Holy Bible, which would have been translated by a whole collection of scholars, chances are some of them were not born again. They were experts in Hebrew or experts in Greek and were grateful for their ability to translate but chances are whenever new Bibles are translated, that the people that are translated aren't necessarily born again people. They have scholastic capacity to translate ancient texts into modern languages, but they're not necessarily born again. They might be translating John three and just it never arrests them. Think about that. Think about being a Bible translator, dedicating your life to translating the Bible and never being converted. There are professors in universities that study the Bible as a ancient text. So fascinating. But they're never transformed by it. They haven't been born again. It's just a, it's like reading Shakespeare for them. And this is why we need the Holy Spirit to go beyond our capacities. In, in John 16, 12 to 13, the Bible says, this is Jesus speaking, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. It's like, well, how is he going to guide me into truth? Is he going to just drop like new ideas out of the sky? You know, those people that are like, they don't read their Bible, but like Jesus is always speaking to them. The spirit's always speaking to them. It's like, well, where's, how do you know that what, what's being communicated to you is from God? Well, I just know. That's not how the spirit works, folks. The spirit does not work apart from the word of God. If you're ignorant in scripture, the spirit of God is not gonna do your reading for you. He's not gonna do your homework for you. He's not going to like dictate John three into your, your head if you've chosen never to read it. Listen to what it says. He will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will use the word of God 
which has already been delivered to us to convict us, to convert us, to rebuke us, to encourage us, to give us a new perspective, whatever it is he needs to do. And this explains why unbelievers struggle to understand scripture. I can tell you story after story of times when I've been talking to people that are spiritually lost who are genuinely interested in what the Bible says, but you just know it's like, their eyes are glazed over, they're not getting it, they just can't comprehend it. And it's not because they're, they're not smart. There are people in our own church that have told us, I, I went to church for years and years and years and years, but I, I wasn't saved. And all of a sudden it's like, I'm saved now. And I just see things through an entirely different lens. That's not because your IQ increased or you went and earned another degree in literature. That's because you now have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will bring his word aptly preached to bear upon your life. So this is a warning to the God told me crowd to make sure they're validating their claims in the word. I believe God speaks to us. I believe the spirit of God speaks to us, but in accordance with his word. It's really critical. Otherwise we actually start to have like almost two Bibles. This one and everyone sort of has their own little Bible or version of what God has said. Fourthly, the Holy Spirit assures us of our salvation. So we're saved and it's an astonishing, miraculous thing. And because grace is so simple in a certain respect, it's, it's like, really? You can get saved and trust in Christ. Really, is that it? Is that all you want? Because the world is telling me I have to perform for that raise or that promotion or that date. And that's the world we live in. You need to perform you need to be a good little boy or girl to get the prize. So it's hard for us to imagine that God accepts us apart from performance. Is that not true? But here's what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, and we doubt it and we doubt it, and we question it. These things God has revealed to us through the Holy Spirit, through the agency of the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So when we hear God's truth spoken, when a preacher says, look, you can actually find new life in Christ by surrendering yourself to Christ, repenting of your sin, putting your faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, you're like, okay, but then someone's like, yeah, but you got to also do a lot of things to kind of stay in God's good books. And, you know, maybe, maybe you can be saved and then lose it again and then have it and lose it, have it and lose it. The spirit of God is the one that works to build your assurance. So you don't have to spend your time chewing your fingernails down to the flesh, wondering if you actually are a child of God. The promises of God are secure in Christ. We can say yes and amen to that. So he assures us of our salvation. By the way, he also convicts us of sin. Let's go back to that. So if you're like, well, I'm a Christian, but I love to sin. He'll convict you of that. And if you continue in sin and you don't care about sin and you're not listening to the Holy Spirit and that becomes a habit in your life, then your assurance of salvation gets flushed down the toilet. So this is critical for us to understand the way the work of the Holy Spirit. We do not believe in cheap grace and we do not believe 
that one can genuinely lose their salvation. Both of those, both of those theologies are false. Those that would say, I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want. I can perpetuate sin. I can live in disobedience. Once saved, always saved. No, you're not. Because the true believer will inevitably and necessarily be convicted by sin and will bear out the, the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Fifth, and these are obviously not in order, but the Holy Spirit baptizes new believers. John the Baptist declared at Jesus' baptism, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. So Jesus' earthly cousin is prophesying about the pending baptism of Jesus, and he's commenting on, on the baptism that he's initiating, the baptism of repentance. But then he says of Christ, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire which means that wasn't present in John's baptism. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So this is a different kind of baptism than water baptism. So water baptism marks the believer as saved. It's a, it's a sign that you are under the new covenant. It's a way of identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It, it is a little bit more than merely an outward display of an inward change. And it's a lot less than the means of salvation. But in the middle there, it is both a mark, a sign of new covenant, the new covenant life and your new identity as you connect yourself through your water baptism, as you demonstrate your connectivity to the resurrected Christ. But spirit baptism marks the believer as indwelt. So water baptism marks you as saved. Spirit baptism marks you as indwelt. And as John the Baptist prophesied this, this came true in Acts chapter two, verses one to four. 50 days after the resurrection, 10 days after Christ's ascension, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, so Pentecost was a Jewish feast and they were gathering together. And what would happen is the Jewish people had scattered all over North Africa and Asia Minor. They had acclimatized to various cultures. Some of them had forgotten the Hebrew language. In fact, most people at the time were speaking Aramaic, but they'd also learned languages in the various nations and places they had gone. I mean, those of you that are maybe second generation immigrants to our country, you may not speak the language of your forebears. You just, you just know English now. You've forgotten the historic languages of your, your ancestors. So all these Jews would come and they'd be celebrating Pentecost. This was like a big reunion of the Jewish people. And suddenly in the midst of all that, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house. They were, they were uh, sitting where they were sitting and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So think about this. Before now, people had not been indwelt with the Spirit of God. This was not normal. If you study the prepositions under the old covenant, it'll say, 
the Spirit came on or the Spirit came upon. That, those are the primary prepositions, the positional words that are used to describe the work of the Spirit. And all of a sudden, something different takes place. And now the Spirit's like whew, coming into, indwelling, filling. And it's so overwhelming that it's like the sound of rushing wind and people are filled with the Holy Spirit. So from Pentecost onward, this is now a conversional reality for every new believer. In the Acts event, this resulted in a massive multilinguistic preachathon where all these people that had never heard the gospel suddenly heard the gospel in their own language. Listen to how this is described in the verses that follow. This is again, Acts 2, verse five and following. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from, from every nation under heaven. So when it says devout men, it means they were servants of God. They weren't people that were dis, uh, disinterested in the things of God, like some of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But there were devout men from every nation and at this sound, the multitude came together. It's like, what's going on over there? And they were bewildered because each one, listen to this, each one was hearing them speak in his own language. That's called a miracle. It doesn't happen by human means. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans, meaning Northern uh, Israelis? Like, how is it they speak our languages? So it defines for us what those tongues were and how it is that we hear each of us in his own native language. So there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya beyond belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, meaning righteous Gentiles, people of non-Jewish origin that had come into the covenant, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? Now, very shortly, 3000 of them would be converted and baptized in water too. So think about this. This, is, this leads to a massive expansion of the gospel. Just all of a sudden the gospel which is essentially fully understood by a, a few handfuls of people, now jumps and leaps over multiple linguistic gaps and becomes a global message in keeping with Jesus' promise. In Matthew 28, go and preach the gospel into the world, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you always. So it's an amazing thing. Suddenly the gospel gets this massive kickstart. So... Who now is baptized in the spirit? I understand some would teach that it's a later event to conversion. It's not my theological bent. As far as I can tell, all genuine believers at the moment of their conversion are baptized into the Holy Spirit of God. You have full access to the spirit of God. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. So fast forward a few decades, Paul is now teaching on gifts to the Corinthian church. And he says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So I don't think we have to worry about not having access to the spirit of God. We all have access to the spirit of God. 
if we've truly been born again. So now we have baptism in the Holy Spirit, and then we also have the filling of the Holy Spirit. So think of the filling as distinct from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So baptism is you have the Holy Spirit in you, but your filling can be like this or like this. What is that connected to? I'm obedient, I'm worshiping, I'm surrendering, I'm disobeying, I'm not interested, I'm not, I'm not living out the, the fruits of the Holy, Holy Spirit. So it's about, we think of filling, we think of it not so much as quantity, but we think of it as connected to surrender. So if you're surrendered, you're filled. If you're going through times when you're being rebellious, don't be surprised that God seems distant. How many times have we heard Christians say, God seems so distant lately. Oh yeah, are you, are, you, are you studying? Are you reading? Are you praying? Are you attending church? Are you obeying the commandments of God? Well, not really. Then that's your lot. <laughs> that's what happens. So listen to this. How do we know that filling is not a one-time, once-for-all event? Well, because we're commanded as believers to be filled, just like we're commanded to obey. So to be filled is more or less dependent on obedience, whereas spirit baptism is a declared reality. Filling is a shared responsibility. Let me say that again. Whereas spirit baptism is a declared reality, filling is a shared responsibility. It's part of our sanctification. This is why in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. This is to believers, be filled. You don't command someone to do something that is already a complete reality. We're not commanded to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say, hey, be baptized again in the Holy Spirit. Be baptized again in the Holy Spirit. We're commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit because sometimes believers let the Holy Spirit wane in their lives. In Acts 4.31, and when they prayed, the place in which they gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They were previously baptized in Acts chapter two. They're filled in Acts chapter four. Different event. And the manifestation of being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's like, well, how do I know I'm filled? Well, it's actually not that difficult. The fruit of the Spirit will be evident in your life. So a diseased tree doesn't produce very much fruit, does it? Or it produces rotten fruit. But a healthy tree produces a lot of apples. And so you just look at a Christian, and unless they're faking it, you can say, okay, that, that person is peaceful, loving, long-suffering, kind, gracious. And they didn't used to be like that. And I've known them for a long time. So we would expect that as we continue to surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit will bear out in our lives. Think of yourself as a tree. What's the fruit a tree bears? The fruit of the Spirit is listed for us in Galatians chapter five. But before we get to the fruit of the Spirit, let's talk about the rotten fruit, the fruit of the flesh. In verse 19 of Galatians five, it says, now the works of the flesh are evident. So if I'm living in the flesh, what are gonna be the kind of things you'd expect to see in my life? Well, these kinds of things. Sexual immorality. Look at the world around us. <laughs> this is a big deal. 
human beings are incredibly creative when it comes to sexual immorality. I mean, you lose track of how many ways you can sin sexually. There's new ways of sinning sexually being created all the time, crazy stuff. You know, that alphabet acrostic just keeps getting longer and longer and longer and longer. There's all sorts of ways to mess ourselves up sexually. So sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, just being fascinated with feeding and paying attention to our fleshly appetites. This isn't from God. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity. Idolatry and sorcery focus on like worshiping other gods. I don't know, like materialism or literally uh, maybe a, a statuette. In some religions, they, they will worship a statuette or a particular object or a, even Christian art can become an object of worship for some people. And then relational sins, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, and divisions. Are these present in your marriage? In your small group? In your family? In your church? It shows you're not surrendered to the Holy Spirit. It's as simple as that. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The list just goes on and on. He doesn't have time to list them all. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, there's the works-oriented verse I was looking for. No, 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 no. This isn't about the means of salvation. This is about the inevitable and necessary fruit of someone who's truly saved. If you're truly saved, these things will in an increasing measure be present in your life. Yeah, there's going to be days when you're living in the flesh and you you take a bit of a nosedive or people, as we say, backslide for periods of time. But if these are characteristics of your life, I'm a drunk, I'm sexually immoral, my relationships are always a disaster, I'm always at people's throats, they're always at mine, I'm not a Christian. Because those aren't the fruit that one would expect to see in the life of a Christian. But, this is the disjunctive in the text. But, the fruits of the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit is love. Where does love come from? From God. Joy, Christian happiness, Christian hedonism. Uh, I there's many pleasures to be had in life when we align ourselves with God. People have this notion, all the, all the, the non-Christians get to have fun and we just have to sort of be glum and boring and cut ourselves off of the pleasures of life. No, no, that's all false advertising, folks. Christians get to have the most fun. We have the best sex. We have the best banquets. We have the best relationships. We can enjoy creation to a greater degree than any lost person ever can if we have surrendered ourselves to the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. These are gifts from God. Whether we eat or we drink, we're allowed to do that. We do it all to the glory of God. So joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things, there's no law, meaning that these things push aside the need for us to measure up to God's laws and to become awakened to the fact that we can't. 
Rather, these things are contrived by and result of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And those who belong to Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. Something actually happened at the cross, it affects us. For we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So in other words, if we claim to have the Spirit in our lives, let's be tuned in to what the Spirit is doing. As you read the Bible, the Spirit of God is never going to not convict you. Like, well, why am I sinning? I wasn't aware of that. Well, because were you reading the Bible? Yeah, but I guess the Holy Spirit didn't really want me to be obedient. So even though I read it and I understood it, he just didn't give me the, the desire for it. No, that's not how it works. If you read God's word, hear God's word, surrender yourself to God's word, God will bear spiritual fruit in your life. And it's an amazing thing. And then finally, he equips us for ministry. He appoints Christian leaders. We read a text about that last week. He appoints and equips Christian leaders. He offers extraordinary supernatural gifts to accomplish his purposes. He also offers run-of-the-mill ministry gifts to accomplish his purposes. And folks, we, we believe that God can do anything that he wants to do so long as it's in keeping with his character and his word. So if God wants to raise people from the dead, he can do that. If God wants to for someone to regrow an arm, God can do that. But one of the interesting things about reading the Bible is we have this, these wild events in Acts. People get a little bored in their face and they read these miracles of God and they're like, well, that's what I want. I want to be the guy that can go touch and heal. I want to be the guy that can speak multiple languages. You know, I want a miracle every day. And that often is a sign of immaturity. It's like, well, yeah, but are you, are you washing dishes in the church kitchen? Are you wiping bums in the church nursery? Are you showing up faithfully, even when you don't feel like it, to teach your kids the importance of the gathered assembly? The point I want to make is much like Simon the Magician, Remember Simon the Magician? Simon the Magician in Acts 8, he wasn't interested in the ministry gifts. Wasn't interested in those at all. He wanted the ability to do the supernatural. That's what's really gonna revive my faith, right? Well, God, God can use human beings. He's done it to do miraculous things. But a miracle, folks, by nature is unusual. It's unusual. A miracle is contrary to nature. If a miracle becomes something that we see every single day, it's not really a miracle anymore. So in our church, we teach God can do miracles. God can do whatever God chooses to do. But let's not be so immature to assume that if I don't get a miracle every day, you know, you see somebody posted on Facebook, expect your miracle for today. Really? Is that the life that God has given to us in the here and now? How about just living in the mundane, normal, day-to-day realities of life, not being like Simon the magician who had to have some special injection every single day to make it another day. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 14 to 11. There's several, you should study this. This, For the purposes of this sermon series, this isn't a, a, a sermon 
on, on the entirety of the spiritual gifts, but I'll introduce it to you. But there's many different lists in scripture of spiritual gifts, but here's some of the more fascinating ones in 1 Corinthians 12, 14 to 11. Now there are a variety, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit so that I can feel better about myself. Now it doesn't say that. For the common good. So if God gifts you, you better make sure that you're using it to bless others. Or that's a selfish Christianity. All of the spirit, the spiritual gifts are not given so you can make it through another day. The spiritual gifts are given so you can be a blessing, so you can edify and build up the body of Christ. For to one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. In other words, from the same spirit, not knowledge you've made up. To another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions, meaning doles out to each one according as he wills. So some of you get this one, some of you get this one, some of you get this one. We see from even the, the, the early church times, Simon wanted something, God said, you're not getting it because I know what your motives are. You're not getting that. You can also look up, I'll give you two more references. Uh, well, one more reference, Romans chapter 12, verses six and eight, which outlines more gifts. And in 1 Corinthians 12, it outlines the, the office gifts. So the Bible talks about spiritual gifts, but there's also offices that are apportioned by the spirit. The, the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, the pastors, the evangelists. Some people have these offices that are given to them and all of the gifts are to be given for the common good. So we are pro-service and we are pro-ministry. We want people not to elevate as some churches do. Sorry to say, it's like Baptist churches. We're going to call ourselves a Baptist church. Really? Out of all the things in scripture, out of all the doctrines in scripture, you're going to focus on baptism? Really? We're a Pentecostal church. Really? Like out of all the things in scripture, that's the one you're going to put on the top shelf? We're a Presbyterian church. Really? Like out of all the things taught in scripture, you're going to put... El your doctrine of eldership on the top shelf. <laughs> I know that's a little bit simplistic, but it's interesting throughout Christian history, people read the Bible and they see something like this or like, that's what I want my church to be all about. That's what we're gonna focus on. That's what we're gonna divide over. That's what we're gonna form associations and not denominations on. Well, there's a reason why we call ourselves a Bible church because we want all of the Bible to be understood and put into practice. And when it comes to the spiritual gifts, fundamentally, whatever God has given to you, we want you to be pro-service and pro-ministry rather than elevating two or three spiritual gifts over all others. And we do this because as God apportions gifts to us, we want our, our gifts 
to be put into practice, not as a manifestation, listen to me carefully, not as a manifestation of our spiritual superiority, but rather as a humble stewardship under God. We work hard at this in our own church and maybe sometimes we fail. So we do believe in authority. We believe that God has put authority in the church and we wanna get that right. But we do not want this church to be Aaron Rock's church. Please don't ever say that to anybody. I go to Aaron Rock's church. I would find that very offensive. Or I come to church for the sermon. I hope you don't because you're usually not that good anyway. There's a whole bunch of things taking place in the life of the church. We want everyone here to discover their gifts and to serve. And we wanna honor those of you that serve behind the scenes, as well as those that serve in more prominent positions. So we're not opposed to the fact that some will be more prominent, just like in your body, your face is more prominent. I have no idea what your feet look like, but I know what your faces look like but I know your feet are important. So in, in the life of the church, we understand that certain gifts will be more prominent, but we value people who have behind the scenes gifts. And if that's the way God has designed you, we want you to flourish in that way, to use your gifts all eight, on all eight cylinders for the honor and glory of God. And to also help other people to understand how God has uniquely gifted them for the work of the ministry. So I would encourage you to, in an increasing measure, pay attention to how the Holy Spirit is working in our world and submit yourself to him and you will be blessed and God will be glorified. And folks, it doesn't get any better than that.